Let us turn now to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27, and we'll read from verse 50. Matthew, chapter 27, reading at verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now considering our, <coughs> continuing our look at the signs that accompanied and followed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, we come tonight to the second of these signs. The first is read here in verse 51, and what we dealt with last Sabbath evening was the rending of the veil of the temple in two, from the top to the bottom. And the next sequence of events runs like this. There was, we read here in verse 51, the earthquake. Then there was the splitting of the rocks, and the word that is used leads us to believe that the rocks were split vertically. Then the graves were opened, and then after the resurrection of Jesus, the bodies of the saints in these graves came out and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And it is that uh, wonderful sign and supernatural event that we turn for a little this evening. Now uh, <clears throat> you will know of course and recognize and one has to acknowledge this that the fact of an earthquake is not in and of itself supernatural. Those of you who are interested in science and no doubt interested in geology particularly if not geography will they be able and would be able to explain perhaps better than I can the natural causes which lead to earthquakes and many of us have uh, there may be some present here tonight who uh, have been in areas where such earthquakes have occurred. Our missionaries, for example, in South America speak of the terror that uh, an earthquake of the smallest dimension uh, strikes into the human heart. 
And we know that many of these earthquakes have been associated with great tragedies and tremendous loss of human life together with the structural damage that is done to many buildings necessitating help for the countries so devastated from a people and from countries worldwide. In other words, there is no doubt a physical, a geological explanation for the earthquakes that you and I hear of, read of, and now see on our television screens. But this earthquake was different. And that is why we speak of it as being supernatural. It was, uh, for example, uh, we read here that uh, our reading of it leads us to believe that there was no large-scale damage or destruction caused by the earthquake. We read of no structural damage done to any of the buildings. And another interesting fact is that it was so localized that uh, it didn't even affect the three crosses that were erected at Golgotha. They weren't in any way disturbed by the earthquake because we know that the very shortly after this the uh, legs of the shin bones of the two uh, manufacturers who were hanged with Jesus were broken in two to hasten their death in the light of the approaching Sabbath day. And that when the soldiers came to Jesus and found him already dead, they pushed his side with a spear. So the crosses were not in any way affected by this earthquake. And then as I mentioned, the rounding or the tearing of the rocks was uh, done in such a way as to lead us to understand that the rocks were actually uh, split open vertically to distinguish from the lateral opening or the horizontal opening of the graves because you will remember of course that graves in Jerusalem were not like the graves that you and I uh, are, uh, uh, know of. They weren't uh, dug uh, six feet into the ground. That these graves that were opened were tombs which were uh, made in the rock structure of the area. It was into one such that Jesus was placed. And you remember that a stone was rolled over the grave to seal it. And it's possible and highly probable that that was the kind, that these were the kind of graves that uh, are referred to here in verse 52, that the graves were opened. In other words, there was a movement of the earth that tore the rocks vertically in that area, and a movement of the earth that 
opened the grave, say, horizontally, so that in the course of time, as I see, the bodies of the saints emerged. So that this was no ordinary earthquake that of which you can say that the structure of the earth is altered very often by internal combustion. The surface of the earth and the texture of the earth is so torn that it leaves huge gaps and huge craters. And this is what causes so much devastation and destruction and death. It wasn't like that. And uh, in that way, we are led to believe that it was a supernatural event and therefore a sign from God, a way by which God was saying something, not only to the people there, but to us, and saying something which is inseparably connected with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something else. You will notice here that the opening of the graves and certainly the rising from the dead was a selective um, event. God selected those who would rise from the dead. If you notice as you read there that it was the bodies of the saints that arose from the graves after his resurrection. Now then, there is no point in trying to ask to answer the question, were there more graves than those out of which the bodies of the saints arose opened? We are not told. Uh, it may very well be that the only graves which are opened were the graves of the saints. It is certainly true that the only people, the only bodies, the only people who rose were the saints themselves. And it's certainly implied that the graves of the unbelievers, if they were not left sealed, it is certain that no unbeliever arose after the resurrection of the Lord. And if again someone would argue that the earthquake was caused by natural causes themselves, in that case, and one would not dispute that, but to say this, if it was occasioned by natural causes, it was occasioned because God, unknown to any, was preparing that very area both in its structure and in its texture over many years for this very moment in time when the earth erupted and the rocks rent and the graves or the tombs were opened. But the two things I want to mention are these and I think that these are the important facts remember here. One is this, that all these events were connected with the death of Jesus. It was because of his death that the veil was rent in twain. It was because of his death that the, quake came, that the earthquake came. It was because of his death that the graves were opened. And it was connection with his death that these bodies rose after his resurrection. And that's the other point I want to make. Notice the sequence of events. 
There was the earthquake when he died. There were the opening of the graves when he died. But the bodies of the saints did not come out of the graves until he rose himself on the third day. Which, of course, poses this question. Were these bodies left exposed from the time of the opening of the grave till his resurrection from the dead? The answer is yes. Secondly, why were they left exposed until his resurrection from the dead? And those of you who are conversant with the Jewish, with, the, with, 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 with traditionalism, with, uh, with the Jewish religion, will know that because this was the Passover, no Jew was allowed to come near a dead body. Because if he came near the dead body, he was ceremonially unclean and therefore was not allowed to participate in the Passover. So the Jew would give a wide birth to a dead body until after the Passover. But you see, after the Passover, Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the record. The bodies of the saints whose tombs were opened rose after his resurrection and entered into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and were seen of many. Now then, these are the facts, and that's the order, the sequence of events. The question, of course, for us tonight is this, and I deal with it very briefly. What was God saying to these people with this miracle, with this supernatural occurrence, and what is he saying to us in this church tonight as well. Well, in the first place, he is saying this. And this is what the whole Bible is all about, the thrust of the Bible in connection with the death of Jesus on Calvary at Golgotha. That there, the power and the presence of God were present and visible. Were present and visible. Putting it in brief, God was there. And you know that there are many, many, many instances in the history of some of the people of God in the Old Testament when this was literally true as well and when they testified of this themselves. Remember Jacob at Bethel when he had that wonderful vision of the Lord coming to him on that ladder that connected heaven to the place in which he lay the bare ground that night. And when Jacob arose and before he left Bethel, this was his testimony. God was there. He had seen the power and he had felt the presence of God. Elijah, or rather Moses, at Mount Sinai, God came down, as we sang here tonight in Psalm 68, God came down in wonderful power and in wonderful presence on Sinai, and God was there. And these were the evidences of his power and of his presence. 
It was the same with Elijah, and I'm just mentioning these three, I could mention many more, but Elijah, remember, at Horeb, and also Moses, at Horeb, when he saw the burning bush, that was God, God was there, invisible power, present, visibly, to Moses who testified of that fact. And it was the same with Elijah. And that moment, that experience of his in Horeb, remember, when he saw the earthquake and the fire, and when he heard that powerful wind, but the Lord wasn't in any of them, and then he heard the still small voice, the Lord was there in a very wonderful way as well. So it is in Calvary, or at Calvary rather, in the death of Jesus. And you know that it is round that great, it's round that wonderful hub, that Paul builds a lot of his teaching in the epistle to the Corinthians. God was in Christ, reconciled in the world unto himself. And the trembling of the earth at Calvary, and the rending of the veil of, of, of the rocks, and the opening of the graves, God was there testifying to men, testifying to us tonight that the death of Jesus had a profound effect upon the order of nature itself as it had a profound effect upon the souls and the lives of men both then and now. The world in which you and I live is a world which cannot be severed from the death of Jesus. And the life that you and I live tonight is a life which cannot either be severed from the death of Jesus. Because the death of Jesus is either the ground of our acceptance before God and our hope for eternity as individuals, or else it is the rock of offense upon which many people stumble. Jesus in his death is either indispensable for you tonight, or else he is an annoyance an intrusion into the privacy of your life that you could well do without and that you cannot understand and that you don't want to understand. And there the Lord at Calvary, the moment that our Lord died, was speaking to the men who were present as he spoke to Jerusalem after his resurrection and was saying to them, this death, has a profound effect upon and a connection with the natural order of things and a profound effect upon and a connection with the souls and the lives of men. Now then, what is that connection? Which is the second point that we will deal with. Well, some may say that at the death of Jesus, someone, some people have said that the earth was a, that this was a gesture of mourning from the creation itself, from the earth that quaked and from the rocks that were rent. Well, whatever else we can say about that, we can assuredly say this. From the letter of Paul to the Romans, we could have read it here tonight, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 12 and in other passages, we can certainly say this. Whatever else is going to happen to this world, 
the world in which you and I live, and I mean by the world there, the earth, the natural order, the structure of this earth, the texture of this earth, and the very bowels of this earth. Whatever else is going to happen to this world, we know that because Jesus died, this world is going to become a new earth, a new world. We know that from, for example, and I just confined myself just now to Romans chapter 8, and we know more. Not only, and this is one of the wonderful things that Paul, one of the wonderful pictures that he draws for us in Romans chapter 8, not only is this world going to become a new order, a new creation, when Jesus comes to judge the world, but we know, and this is what is so wonderful, and what we find so difficult to understand, that in some wonderful way, this earth, is in sympathy, and this is Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 8, is in sympathy with the Christians who live in the world, who are groaning as they live in the world, who are oppressed and opposed for the faith in this world. The whole creation, we read, groans and travels in pain until now, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. And what he's saying is this, there are Christians in the world they long to get out of the world. They're longing for the day when the Lord will come for them and take them to himself. And let's make no mistake about this. Some people will say, oh, well, that's not a very worthy reason for the Christian to mourn in the world. Is it not? Is it not? Anyone who has come face to face with the evil and the darkness that, that is abroad in this world cannot but long for the day when there will be no evil and no darkness to oppress him and to oppose him in this world. These are the things that cause so many groanings in the Christian's life. And Paul says this, these Christians are living like that, but they're longing and they're waiting for the redemption of their body. They look forward to a better day, to a better environment, to a better place in the presence of the Lord soul and body and they long for that day. Don't you long for it as a Christian tonight? Are there not times when you're thankful that this is not your rest? Are there not times when you rejoice to realize, to know that there is a hope set before you and that God will not disappoint your hope? Of course you live like that. But this is the wonderful thing. The creation in which you live, the world in which you groan. And this is the picture, is in some way groaning with you. The world is in sympathy with you. It too is looking forward to deliverance, to redemption, to reconstitution, to renewal, because this world is under the curse of sin, brought upon it by the sin of man. But the world is going to be delivered from the curse of sin because Jesus died to remove the curse and the quaking of the earth at the death of Jesus was a fortress to the earth itself and to the world of mankind that the world's renewal the creation's renewal is rooted as much in the death 
death of Christ as is the renewal and the deliverance of the believer in the world. That's the first point that we make in connection with this. Because as we saw last week, and I'm spending too much time on this, as we saw last week, the, um, the, uh, there was a, the, the Calvary was a place of judgment. Golgotha was a place of judgment. The cross was a place of judgment. The death of Jesus was the voice of judgment. And the death of Jesus was answering this question and answering it in a profound way. To whom does the world belong? God answered. The world belongs to the Saviour. To whom would the earth belong? It would belong to him. To whom would the temple belong? It would belong to him. The veil was rent and he sits king upon his throne. A priest at his own altar. And he is also Lord of all the earth. This was a pledge to the natural order that the curse was removed and the day would come when the natural Lord would be delivered from the delivered completely from that curse but for us and more particularly it was saying something else it was saying in this earthquake and in the rending of the rocks and in the opening of the grave Jesus was a triumphant event it was a victory. Remember, he died triumphantly. He, he died actively. He gave himself to death. This was no ordinary death. As I mentioned before, and I don't want to spend time on it. Because a very delicate subject for people. People in the throes of death, they are taken by death. Taken. There comes a moment when they can struggle no more. They are overcome. But that wasn't the way Jesus died. He summoned death. And he poured out his soul unto death. He was as active in his death as he was in his life. He died triumphantly. And this earth was made to know that. The grave was made to know it. That the death of Jesus had power over the world and over the grave. The grave was sealed until that moment because sin, sin was giving it its power and its authority. If you don't believe in the presence of sin, my friend, you can understand we can agonize on grass and crossbust. And have a look at all the cemeteries that your eye can take in. And there's the evidence for the reality of sin. The wages of sin is death. But here's a man, here's a person who took our sins upon himself. Who died our death and who took our sins away. And his death spoke to the grave. Open. Because I have paid the price of the sin that gives you your authority. And as the rocks were rent by the power of his death, so the graves were opened by the power and the efficacy and the victory of his 
death. And when the graves were opened, that was what the death of Christ was saying. That the grave was now denied its victory because the price was paid. He died for our sins. And the effects of the death of Christ on the cross reached down to the very domain of the dead. The power of his death was effective to rest the seals from the grave. And as we shall see ultimately to rest the bodies of the dead from the curse of sin, from death itself. Someone put it like this. The moment he entered the realm of the dead, the mouth of that realm is made to open and to yield up its contents. Therefore, the bodies of the dead were exposed. That's the point. On that day and at that hour, the bodies of the dead were exposed. The mouth of death was made to open and to yield. The mouth of the grave and the realm of the dead was made to open and to yield up its contents. And that was proof that God was satisfied with the atoning work of Jesus, of the death of Jesus. That he was satisfied with the merit and the power of his death. And the resurrection of Christ, and this is why we speak like this, is grounded in the atoning work of his death by which God was satisfied. And God gave two visible tokens of that acceptance. First of all, as we saw, the graves were opened. And then, when he rose, the dead rose after him and went into the holy city. Now, if you read, and I think that this is important, I must say that I had great difficulty with this myself, but if you read it, that is a sequence of events. We read these verses as though, the, as though the graves were open and the dead rose the day he died. They didn't. The graves were open the day he died, the moment he died, but the dead, the dead bodies of the saints arose after his resurrection. They were exposed for two days and then they rose. And that leads us to answer thirdly and finally this. What was the rising from the dead? Or what was God saying to us and to the people of, his day, of their day through their rising from the dead? Well, in the first place he was saying that they were rising for the sake of Christ. They rose because he rose. Remember that his resurrection is grounded in the, in, in the power and the merit of his death. And they rose because he rose. Now we are not told who they were. But I think that some things can be deduced from the way it is placed. You see there are some people who will say, remember what Jesus said. Abraham, he said, saw my day. 
and rejoiced. There are some people who think that Abraham was one of the people who rose. Others think that Job was one of the men who rose because he said that he would see. He would see the Savior in the flesh. Others say it must be that Moses was there. Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know who they were. But it is unlikely that they would have been the bodies of people who were dead hundreds and hundreds of years before this. Because the graves were opened and the bodies were exposed. So they couldn't have been there in the graves all that long because the process of decomposition had not set into an extent that the bodies were not recognisable. They were seen as bodies. But the significant thing is this. It isn't who they were individually, but what were they? They were the bodies of the saints. What's a saint? A person who loves and who serves the Lord. A person whose life is committed to him by his grace. The bodies of the saints arose. The bodies of the saints who slept. People who loved the Lord. Who believed. People who exercised hope in the fulfillment of his promise. And who lived as God would have them live. These are the saints. And here they are now. Men and women. As far as we know. Men and women. Who didn't see the Lord, but who longed and awaited for the coming of the Messiah into the world. Maybe people like, like Anna, people like Simeon, who blessed the Lord when he came and saw and who said, Now let us thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. They were members of the church of God from a past age, who looked and awaited and he longed for the coming of the Saviour. And now they arise after his resurrection, showing this, that just as the church of the present day owes its existence to the death of Jesus, so does the church of the past. So does the church of the past. You see, there are some people who say that the believer in the Old Testament, his faith was different to the faith of the believer in the New Testament. In its nature, it was not. Because the faith of the Old Testament saint looked to exactly the same object as the faith of the New Testament saint. The difference is this, that the New Testament saint has far more light upon the object of its faith than the Old Testament saint had. And that is why this is said of them. That day, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but believing them, they embraced them, and they looked, they looked for the fulfillment. They were like people who were standing at a certain point, and they were looking to an object far, far away, and they couldn't make out as clearly as they would want to what they were in actual fact seeing. But they were looking for it, waiting for it, wanting to see more of it. They were looking through a glass darkly, because so are we. But the glass that they had was darker than the glass that we had. They had only part of the word of God. We have the word of God in its entirety. But you see, they were saints because they believed God, they loved him and they looked for him and they were waiting and longing for the Saviour. And the church of the past is speaking now to the church of the present. When it arose from the dead. Speaking of the reality and the genuineness 
of their faith and speaking of the faithfulness of God in the midst of all the difficulties and the objections that met their faith. God was faithful and that is why the Old Testament church and the New Testament church and the church tonight in heaven glorified saints and the spirits of just men and women in the presence of God are all united in the death of Jesus. You, my friend, who love the Lord here tonight, you are related and associated with Abraham and Moses and Job and David and all the Old Testament saints. As you are united by faith and love in the same Lord to all the saints who love him in the world tonight, and associated and united with all the saints in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And that's the power and the wonder of his death. It united the past and the present and the future. And that's what God was saying when the Old Testament saints arose, or rather the bodies of these saints arose at his death. They arose to proclaim the victory of his death and they arose to point to the Lord who died we are not told what they said to their fellow men in Jerusalem there isn't a single word left in the Bible of what they said maybe they never said a word for all we know we don't know how long they stayed in Jerusalem either we know nothing of these things we don't know where they went except that they went into the holy city Jerusalem but they didn't need to speak. He, here was living evidence, testimony to the people there of the power and the efficacy of the death of Jesus. And in that sense, they were the forerunners of the apostles. But there's something very interesting here. You know that on more than one occasion, people had said to Jesus, Give us a sign so that we may believe. Prove the reality of what you're speaking. Some people as far as to say this. That people rise from the dead we will believe. The rich man said that in hell. If only some would rise from the dead. They would believe. Well. Here is the Lord. Speaking now to that kind of voice in Jerusalem. And saying. Evidence. Here's your evidence. And yet we don't believe a single person who believed as a result of the rising from the dead. But the point is this, that there are people in this church tonight who have been spiritually raised from the death of their own sins and from the grave of their own deception by the power of the grace of God. And their lives are witnessing to all around them of the reality of that power and of that grace. And that's a wonder. But let me say this to you. We have a greater wonder than that. And the wonder the one that is what if I were to ask you tonight, what is a more powerful witness than the life of a saved sinner saved by the power of his grace? Is there a greater wonder and a more powerful evidence in the lives of men? Yes, there is. The evidence and the wonder and the power 
of the word of God. Coming in the power of the spirit of God. It rends the hearts that are rocky. It breaks them. And moves them in penitence and in faith to come to the Lord. When the power of the truth comes it opens the graves of sin. And when the power of the truth comes by the Spirit, it quickens those who are in the sepulchre of their own sin. It raises them from the dead. It bids them go to their Jerusalem, to go to the place of witness, to the place of difficulty, and to the place of opposition. But it also tells them to go to the holy city. It unites them in bonds of fellowship and love to those who are already members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder tonight if that is your experience. Has God spoken in your life by his power as he spoke at Golgotha? By his power through the death of Jesus. And has the word of his grace come to you with that effectiveness in your own life. And there is something else that that word says to us as well. And that this miracle Calvary also says to us, here is a pledge and a pattern of the future resurrection of the dead. You know, there is no point in asking such questions as these. For example, let me just mention two or three to you. Was the resurrection of these men from the graves the same in its nature as the resurrection of Lazarus from his tomb? The answer is yes. Was the resurrection of, was the resurrection of these men different to the resurrection that awaits us at the day of judgment? The answer again is yes. Because we don't know, for example, how long these men were in Jerusalem. But we do know that they went back to the realm of the dead. And I just want to make this point. And this is just pure conjecture. If Jesus ascended heaven into heaven before these people again returned to the realm of the dead, what a wonder awaited the eye of their soul as they entered or re-entered heaven, they saw there what they had never seen, the glorified human nature of our Lord after his resurrection. If that was when they went back to the realm of the dead. But the point I want to make is this, that in their resurrection we, are, we have a pattern of our resurrection. You see, we read here, they came out of the graves after his resurrection. And that's the way it will be when he comes again to judge the world. He will come and then they who are the Lord's will rise first from the grave. The voice of the archangel shall call forth the dead. But the dead in Christ shall rise first. He will speak 
and he will raise and he will raise those who love him I don't know in what way this is going to happen but perhaps you can imagine this when the Lord comes he will speak to the likes of Peter and Paul and John and James and Ruth and Mary to rise from the dead first those who are his I wonder my friend if you will be amongst them will I be there I wonder how many of us can say with the assurance of the hymn writer when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more when the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved on earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder I'll be there do you think you can say that tonight have you by the power of his grace been delivered from the grave of your sin has he set you free from the sepulchre of the service of the devil have you been unable to step out into the light of his favour and his grace and has he enabled you by his power to return to your Jerusalem to witness to those who knew a life that was once lived in the service of sin but now hopefully claimed for the Lord who died and have you by his grace been united to the holy Jerusalem are you there well if you are you too can have the assurance that you will rise from the dead after he comes and you will rise first with all those in the world to have served him what a company to be in what a prospect is held out before you what a tragedy that you should live your life in any other fellowship or in any other association when he who died on the cross bids you once again look unto him and be ye saved all ye ends of the earth for I am God and there is none other will you come to the Lord who died and who lives and who reigns and who's going to come again and for whose presence there are many in the world tonight longing, looking, hoping and waiting and saying with the church in heaven O Lord, how long? Let us pray. Oh, do thou bless our hearts. And do thou take us, we pray thee, and unite us to thyself in the bonds of faith and love. Help us to live to thy glory and to rejoice in the knowledge that thou hast triumphed over death 
and over the grave. Do thou help us to step out with thyself into the newness of the life that thou hast died to purchase for lost hell-deserving sinners that we can say because he lives I live also have mercy upon us and part of thy blessing for Jesus' sake Amen <clears throat>